0: Welcome everybody on this not terribly attractive morning when it must have been very tempting not to leave the house at all. Um, This is um, Essex Church, the home of Kensington Unitarians. My name is Caroline Blair and I've been a member here for about 10 years. I'm taking the service today while our minister Sarah is away. Um, I've got some opening words from Tony McNeil, who's a member of the Earth Spirit Network which is the pagan branch of um, the Unitarian Church in Britain. Um, I'm not a member of the Earth Spirit Network. I'm not a pagan, um, other than on a metaphorical level. But I put this in at the last minute because the weather was so awful and I wanted to um, give some recognition. It's been a week when the weather's been very much in the forefront of our minds. So this is Tony McNeil. There is life we cannot see when winter grips the earth, There is more darkness. There are more storms. The hills can reverberate to the clamour of thunder and the wind cuts across moorland like a swinging scythe. Who would venture out in these dark days? Only the brave and the foolhardy. That's us. But storms cease. Silence returns, glistens and sparkles as the moonbeams and the stars show their light to the earth. Human eyes can only see so much. There are false limits in the mind. The true world is a larger place than we think we know. Magic hides away beyond our comprehending vision. Gods and goddesses still walk among us and weave their spells. A glance may heal or a glance may end a blessing. The world is a beautiful world of song and love that can rekindle the saddest heart. Do not turn your back on those cold nights. They can bring you a message of peace. Now all over the world, at Unitarian Unitarian Universalist churches, people are doing what we're about to do and lighting the chalice candle, which is um, the symbol of our community. We light this chalice for the light of truth. We light this chalice for the warmth of love. We light this chalice for the energy of action. Now, I've got a reading here called Rethinking Heaven by the Reverend Marlin Lavenhar. Now he's the minister at um, Tulsa in Oklahoma, the Unitarian Universalist Minister. And there are several of his sermons um, you can watch on YouTube if you have access to a computer. Um, I think it, it, they, are, they are well worth watching. They're 30 minutes long. We obviously have more stamina in the US than we have here. So I've had to take quite a lot out um, to make it into a reading. Now, <clears throat> when his, his topic is... Um, sort of thinking of, of what heaven might mean um, and in a sense he doesn't really come to any answers but I think you have to give him credit for asking such fantastically difficult questions he's an agnostic his little girl has died um, he has done lots of thinking about um, slavery and the culture of the American slaves which was focused very heavily on paradise to come, they had such a poor time in this life, that it was a very fundamental part of their um, culture and creativity, their music, um, to think of the rewards that are going to come in the next life. Now those are hard questions and you have to respect him for asking them. So this is um, Reverend Marlin Lavenhar. On occasion, I found myself at the bedside of someone who's dying in a matter of hours or days. And I'll ask them... When you make it to the other side, if you see my little girl, Sienna, who died back in 2006, will you give her a hug from me and tell her that her mother and her brother and I are doing all right and that we love her? And every one of them said yes. Most of us have a hard time imagining such a heaven, but we certainly wouldn't mind being surprised and finding that we're wrong. Or would we? Let's think about it for a second. The idea of eternal life without end sounds great at first. But when you think about it, it may not be that heavenly. Vacation forever. Sunday, Sunday, seven days a week. Let's be honest, eternity of ever, anything would become an incredible bore. Remember, what gives things value and makes things precious is scarcity. If gold grew on trees and apples were buried deep in the earth... We would measure our worth in apples. Limits are what give our life value. Limits help us appreciate the time we have with each other. And instead of seeking immortality in another life, we can be inspired to leave a legacy in this life. Heaven has played a major role in the religion of the oppressed. But if we really believe that heaven is meant to be experienced here on earth, What does that theology say to slaves and to people who are living in desperate conditions around the world today? Because a theology that can't speak to those people is not a theology worth having. Are we left smugly patting them on the head, telling them, your view is simplistic, but we understand why. Our view is so much more advanced and relevant. He goes on to describe the musical tradition of the American slaves with their spirituals and how they put a lot of emphasis on the dignity and power that would await them in the next life and suggests that the very fact of creating the songs did bring dignity to those involved. carries on. The slave or oppressed person in this situation has transcended the subjugation of his life and he has tapped into his holiness and his wholeness. The belief itself brings to earth the ways of heaven. To be sure, this belief can at times be an opiate, providing expectations, allowing that person to transcend the current moment, but remain resigned to it. But it can also be, and has been, the critical factor that allows a person and a people to feel a sense of dignity and worth and give them the power to rise up and change the world. I've come to think of eternity not as a length of time, but as a quality of time. Does this mean that I have completely given up on any idea of an afterlife? All I know is that the consciousness that we have, where does it go after we die? It's a complete mystery. There is only one way to find out. And let me just say, I can wait. Mm -hmm. Philip Pullman has described himself as an agnostic atheist. He's also a writer who's very much in love with language um, and uses language very intensely. I thought it was interesting and rather moving to see how he manages to portray what you might call an agnostic atheist version of the afterlife that is not sterile or trivial. Now, it's always difficult to appreciate a reading, potentially difficult, if it's halfway through a novel you haven't read. Um, So I hope this will will, um, um, make itself felt to you, even if you haven't read the book. There are only two things you need to know um, before I read it. One is that in this book, The dead people have been sent to an afterlife that is like a classical vision of Hades, completely unchanged from um, classical Greek and Roman times. It's not a place of punishment, but they didn't have a very optimistic view of what happened to you after you were dead. It was gloomy and um, unrelenting, unvarying. Um, People become ghosts, and they cross the river into this this, um, gloomy place. The second thing, um, just as a detail, in this novel there's um, an item called the subtle knife that can cut a window between worlds. Those are the only two things you need to know. It starts off with this character called Will. He is in the land of the dead. Will cut a window, and it was the sweetest thing they had ever seen. The night air filled their lungs, fresh and clean and cool. Their eyes took in a canopy of dazzling stars and the shine of water somewhere below and here and there groves of great trees as high as castles dotting the wide savannah. Will enlarged the window as wide as he could moving across the grass to left and right making it big enough for six, seven, eight to walk through abreast out of the land of the dead. The first ghosts trembled with hope, and their excitement passed back like a ripple over the long line behind them. Young children and aged parents alike, looking up and ahead with delight and wonder as the first stars they had seen for centuries shone through their poor, starved eyes. The first ghost to leave the world of the dead took a step forward, and turned to look back and laugh in surprise as he found himself turning into the night, the starlight, the air. And then he was gone, leaving behind such a vivid little burst of happiness that Will was reminded of the bubbles in a glass of champagne. Later, the door is discovered by somebody on the outside. In the side of the hill, just a few yards away, was one of those openings made by the subtle knife. It was like the mouth of a cave, because the moonlight shone into it a little way. And out of it was coming a procession of ghosts. Old men and women, children, babes in arms, humans and other beings too, more and more thickly, they came out of the dark into the world of moonlight, and vanished. That was the strangest thing. They took a few steps, in the world, grass and air and silver light, and looked round, their faces transformed with joy, and held out their arms, as if they were embracing the whole universe. And then, as if they were made of mist or smoke, they simply drifted away, becoming part of the earth and the night breeze. All that was left was the sweetness of that feeling, she looked into the darkness, as far as she could see, into that endless silence, more of these ghosts were coming, thousands upon thousands, like refugees returning to their homeland. So that's, uh, I thought that was nice, as a pagan, agnostic, atheist, humanist vision of um, Avon Afterlife. Now, it's probably true to say that there are few Unitarians um, in the world who believe that after we die, we will go to paradise and we'll be able to look down on all the Baptists and the Methodists and the United Reformed Church people and the Sunday shoppers um, as they go to hell. Um, In the UK, we don't actually have Universalists as part of our denominational name, but um, I think we would go along with them. The the sort of fundamental view of the Unitarian. The Unitarian Universalists, the Universalist part means we're all in the same boat, whatever that boat is. Now, I'm a confirmed agnostic. Um, I'm not going to stand here and describe heaven to you. Um, But what is striking is how difficult it would be to do that in any way that would work at all. Any of us could imagine a hundred kinds of hell oh, with no trouble at all. There is nothing easier than to think of hell. But there are all kinds of challenges to even imagining a metaphorical heaven other in, in the very vaguest terms. Now part of the problem is that most of us are relatively comfortable. If somebody spends their whole life Threatened by hunger, thirst, heat, and weariness, there is an emotional intensity to imagining, for example, to take um, an image that you will have heard walking in the cool of a garden in the evening. Now, if we wanted to walk in the cool of a garden in the evening, we would do that. We can be cool, we can be well fed, we can have enough to drink. If someone is powerless, disrespected, and bullied throughout their lives, as say, the slaves in America were, the vision of heaven where they could take their rightful, honoured place was an absolutely fundamental part of their culture. Again, somebody who has suffered a great bereavement may find that the idea of being reunited later in some form is all that is needed to give the idea of, um, of a heaven a reality and an aliveness. But on the whole, people throughout the ages have had problems in creating any idea of heaven. When Milton wrote Paradise Lost, he depicted Satan as a kind of tragic hero and by far the most compelling character. When he came to describe heaven and the presence of God, he said he was unable to describe them. William Blake famously said, The reason Milton wrote in fetters when he wrote of angels and God and at liberty when of devils and hell is because he was a true poet and of the devil's party without knowing it. The torments of hell were a wonderful subject for art during the mainly pre-Renaissance years when that was a popular doctrinal subject. But heaven, the most common remark that you will hear over any depiction of heaven, is people will say, "But that would get so boring. Hence the terms in which um, it is customarily described in modern theological works. Just bland, no details, because as soon as they put in details, it sounds unconvincing. So they put it in the vaguest possible terms. And we face two difficulties in trying to envisage even the most metaphorical paradise, one is that we can't grasp the idea of eternity, or any other form of infinity. We could approach this obliquely by saying we have moments of this when we are totally in the moment, and therefore outside time, and unaware of the passing of time. In a sense that is experiencing, experiencing eternity, even though in fact it does pass. The second difficulty is more fundamental. We're not very good at envisaging happiness. I think we live to some extent in a state of fear. As soon as we catch ourselves thinking, I feel so happy at the moment, it can immediately dim that feeling of happiness a bit. It reminds us, as we say it, that it is only a moment. It will soon be over. It's the state of mind that makes children cry, perhaps at tea time on Christmas Day. Even though the festivities are still going on, they realise they're coming to an end and it seems an unimaginably long time before they'll come again. Sometimes um, when children get a bit older, they find they cry on Christmas morning or even on Christmas Eve because they've longed for Christmas for so long. And then suddenly they realise it's here and it will soon have passed and then it will all be over and there's nothing to look forward to anymore. It's fatally easy to find ourselves looking at a glorious sunset, for example, and think, I really must be feeling happy, because here I am, looking at a glorious sunset. And then you feel a bit flat, even slightly depressed, because you think, well, I'm not happy enough. What does it take? Now, putting that to one side for a minute, it's interesting to look at words that exist in other languages that we don't have in English. Um, it's actually quite an entertaining activity. Uh, you can find lots of them online. Some, some words that we, they have in other languages and not in English, it, it's just puzzling we don't have them, they're very useful words. Uh, one word that struck me they have in innumerable languages, and we don't seem to have in English, is a, a very ordinary activity, especially among teenagers. They have mobile phones that are, they have to top up by buying credit. Every time they make a phone call they use up some of that credit so they have this almost universal system of calling each other not intending that that call will be answered because that way none of their money is used up. So they'll say, when I get to the bus stop I'll, meaning I'll call you or ring twice and then that's it, you know that I'm there. We don't have a word for it. Almost every other European language seems to have a word for it. The nearest we can come to is I'll miscall call you. I'll call you and you won't answer so it hasn't cost any money. I don't know why we don't have a word for it. Um, Other words uh, I came across are just absolutely charming, and I want them. In Bangladesh, they have a word meaning affectionately angry. I want a word that means affectionately angry. I feel that so often. More fundamental, because it suggests... um, There are words that we don't have in English, because we don't really have that concept. Now, I don't know if there's anyone in, in this room that speaks Japanese, but I'm going to use a Japanese term, so I hope my pronunciation is not hideous. There is a Japanese term, mono no aware. You might have come across it. Um, now, this is um, it grew up in the 18th century as a kind of um, aesthetic term, but also describing a whole approach to life. And it's been variously translated as a sensitivity to ephemera, the wistfulness caused by impermanence, a gentle sadness at the passing of things. It's a positive term, it's considered of great value. Reflecting on the transients of beauty is considered a vital part of appreciating beauty. The most archetypal subject for Japanese art is, as you can see on the front of your order of service, cherry blossoms. They bloom for a week. That's all. You wait all all year for this, this week when they're in glorious bloom. Then they fade and then they fall. According to the principles of mono no aware, a falling or wilting flower is at least as beautiful as one in full bloom. Unlike our western concept of beauty, which is that beauty is something that's external to ourselves and therefore we can easily lose it, This concept of beauty is seen as an experience of the heart and soul and is retained by them even when the outside form of it has passed. Now I see this as a a spiritual practice and one that's worth trying. The kind of blankness that often overtakes us when we become too aware of the specialness of a moment and therefore how soon it will have gone is based on the mental division that we make between what we still have and what we've lost. It makes it very difficult for us to have or even imagine moments of bliss that are genuinely outside of time. Because as soon as we think we might be having one, we stop having one. It's one of the reasons I dislike those what's called bucket lists, the hundred things you must do before you die sort of lists. I've attacked them before, but this is a different attack. People will pay perhaps £1,000 to go on a whale-watching trip, and they see a whale, and they think, well, here I am, watching this whale that I've just paid £1,000 to see, so I can tick that off my list, and that part of my life is now over. That isn't really a very positive way of um, approaching things. Far from being a moment of bliss that exists outside of time, it's reducing life's experiences to a kind of catalogue. Well, I've ticked off the whale, now I've got to go and eat at the ivy, and I've got to go and watch The Marriage of Figaro and get a couple more ticks on my list. Now, we don't really have a word for a poignant but sweet parting from an experience. Because we don't have a word, it's perhaps harder for us to embrace this concept. For the classical Japanese artist or poet, thinking of the principles of mono no aware, The moment when you've been watching a whale and it disappears from view, and we are left in a state of gentle sadness and gratitude towards it, is the moment of the most intense beauty. Because it's internal to us, and not from outside us, it can't be snatched away. The parting is stripped of its negative connotations. We can appreciate a beautiful moment without fearing that it will end, because the ending is part of that beauty. Now, I'm no nearer to envisaging a way to envisage eternity in a literal sense. If I tell you that um, it's been estimated that it takes light 40 billion years to travel from here to the edge of the known universe, we can't literally grasp that in any way, I don't think. And actually, that bears no more relation to an infinite distance than an inch does. You know, an infinite distance is infinite. There's, there's no amount that you can describe that um, has any bearing on the definition of infinity. But we can grasp the concept of moments that seem to be outside time. I've always envisaged, when people say you have to live in the moment, I've seen it as a process of excluding factors that might interfere with that, sort of batting away negative thoughts. Um, such as, I mustn't get too happy, or it will just be worse when this is all over. The Japanese attitude described as mono no aware is a process more of including more in the moment, not excluding things. If we find thing, ourselves thinking, it's going to be sad when this is over, we can try and accept that sadness, that is part of the feeling of bliss, it's not in opposition to it. It means striving to be so at ease with the impermanence that we can relax into the moment rather than trying to hold on to it, then grieving at its passing. This is one of those addresses that changed as it went along. I started writing with a vague thought that paradise for many of us might be defined as moments of bliss without any shadow of doubt or regret. And I've ended up with a definition that allows for doubt and regret. They're valid elements of our moments of bliss. We need to welcome them and not fight against them. As a spiritual practice I'm not sure this is easy or natural to those who have grown up in our sort of seize the day western attitude but it's surely worth thinking about. I'm going to finish with two very short literary, literary extracts. The first is from the medieval Japanese monk Yoshido Kenko and he's not just accepting but embracing the transience of everything. If man were never to fade away like the dew, never to vanish like the smoke, how things would lose their power to move us? The most precious thing in life is its uncertainty. And finally back to William Blake with his famous words, which I'm sure you all know, in which he explores concepts of transience, innocence and loss. To see a world in a grain of sand and heaven in a wild flower. Hold infinity in the palm of your hand and eternity in an hour. May we see each day as a blessing, a gift and an opportunity. As we step forward, we ask for strength that we may hold true to our path while holding open our arms to others. We ask for insight that we may find the way even in the darkest winter night. We ask for confidence that our power will be available to us to place in the service of the good. And we ask for love love that binds and empowers and emboldens us. Love that transforms and beautifies everything around us. Love that defeats hatred. Love that, above all, creates more love. Amen.